1: throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair,
0: put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African-Americans are so angry. Because until you know the
1: whole history, it isn't American history at all.
0: Well, it's good to be here again with you, my dear niece as we continue the conversation about systemic racism in American social institutions, the root of why black African-Americans are angry. Today, we're going to get into the institution near and dear to my heart, education.
1: Education. If you've been to any school on any level, you've been educated. And if you were a kid in our family, you know, back to school time was like Christmas for Aunt Carol, but we always had the best school supplies.
0: <laughs> I got a big kick out of that. I love buying school supplies. I love having the new pencils and the uh, latest Uh, notebooks, that was always fun. So having been a teacher and an administrator in public education for over 30 years, though, it's painful to admit this is an area that still has patterns, procedures, practices, and policies that consistently penalize, disadvantage, and exploit Black African Americans, and specifically youth.
1: As a person who has been a black youth, I can confirm as a actual participant and student in the system, it's true. As young as seven, uh, black boys and girls are seeing this leading net less care and nurturing. There are higher uh, statistics of black kids being uh, suspended, expelled, and over-policed. Something as simple as how we wear our hair is looked at as a sign of misbehavior, disrespect and a reason not to educate us as well as our white co- counterparts.
0: No, you have captured a lot of what's going on today in schools, Courtney. That's unfortunate and um, very much unnecessary, but it is happening. Today, a uh, lot of that what we're going to talk about is documented in a book titled The Education of Blacks in the South, 1860 to 1935. And that book is by Dr. James D. Anderson. We'll also talk about a few other reports as we go along that uh, explains the situation with racism, systemic racism, both in the past and and what's going on currently. Now, Dr. Anderson's book is one of those dense, well researched books that gives a foundation for why America's educational system looks the way it does today. So it started back a long time ago. Remember the title says 1860 to 1935. So he covered a really big span of time and that's the foundational information that you have to have in order, uh,
1: in order to understand why schools look the way they look today. Now, when you gave that book to me and I started to read it, I can admit it read like a school book. But the facts that I learned, especially in my own family, a photo in that book is a school that my husband's ancestors went to in South Carolina. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know. I had seen that picture before. It wasn't until my mother-in-law said, hey, that building's right down the street from us. And our relatives went there. There's Hmm. so much good information. But as I read it, I kept waiting when is the other shoe going to drop? And boy, did it.
0: It did. It did. Dr. Anderson really exposes uh, that history of systemic racism in our country and in the education system. So let's talk about what it looked like in the past uh, from the Civil War up until, let's say, the mid-50s.
1: Jim Crow laws in the South meant that schools had to be separate but equal, but these schools were very segregated and not even close to equal. You're exactly right. Uh, What we see when we read Dr.
0: Anderson's book and other very scholarly work and even talk to people that lived through this time, uh, there were fewer African-American black children who were enrolled in school because they were often pulled out to work on the farm or if a white owner uh, owned the land where they were working, didn't think education was needed, then then children didn't get to go to school. So basically, they only went to school two to three months out of the
1: year. Not as many public schools were available for black students. If not enough money for two schools existed, there was only going to be a white school. And if there was a black school, it was in disrepair with not enough desks, uh, or school supplies, books, things that you need to have a school, to even play school.
0: Exactly. And a lot of times these uh, the schools where black and African-American students attended, uh, they tended to have all grades in one room. And the teachers who had to work with that, they didn't receive as much training, the black teachers, because they they were not going to teach in a white school, but black teachers didn't receive as much training as white teachers, and their salaries were always less than white teachers. So that made it hard to find people to go into teaching, um, and and that was unfortunate. I did find out after reading this book or uh, talking to my dad when he was still alive that uh, my grandmother, which would be your grandmother, grandmother and um, two of his aunts and an uncle had been teachers uh, during this time, uh, the, the late 1800s, the early 20s and 30s. So I guess um, education is in my DNA. But be that as it may, they were teaching during a time that schools were segregated and not equal, as you said. Tell us a little bit about the books.
1: If they had books, they were hand-me-downs for white schools with large chunks missing. Why would you want to take part out of a school book? Is there a reason for that? Oh,
0: Oh, absolutely. The historian Carter G. Woodson talked about the limits white leaders put on what children could be taught. For example, they didn't want children exposed to ideas like equality and freedom, so some children in Southern schools were not allowed to use books that included, get this, the Declaration of Independence or the U.S. Constitution, because if they saw those documents, they would confirm they were being denied the rights due to all citizens. Um, Now, things were a bit better for black children in the North who were going to school, since there were not as many instances of such blatant racial divides as Jim Crow. But that didn't mean black children were getting better or equitable education. But in the South, it was very bad. So being the history nerd that you are, I'm sure you have a true story about systemic racism from the past as relates to education. Is that true?
1: It is true. Now, we often use social media. So I know many of us have seen a picture of a gentleman sitting in a classroom of a lecture hall by himself. And there may be a little blurred, but I'm going to tell you the story of how that man got to that desk. His name was Dr. George McLaurin. He was born on September 18, 1887. Now, Dr. McLaurin was not your normal fresh-faced uh, college chloed. When this picture was taken, he was 61 years old. He had already been a college professor at Langston University. He had received a master's degree already from the University of Kansas, and all of his children had already obtained master's degrees as well. But there was something about Dr. McLaren that made him a better candidate as a student. So was
0: Dr. McLaren um, asked to desegregate? Is that why he was chosen? What was he up to?
1: Well, he, along with five other people, well-educated students, were challenging the state of Oklahoma. They had all applied for uh, acceptance at Oklahoma University, but were denied. Now, one person that I do want to shine a light on who – a lot of times doesn't get credit in this story is a lady by the name of Ida Louise. Ida Louise Spurgel. And she is a well-known civil rights leader uh, in the Kansas City area as well as Oklahoma. She was the first person to apply and be a part of this group of five, but she did not attend Oklahoma University until 1949, which was a year after uh, Dr. McLaurin. Now, Now, the reason why Dr. McLaurin was so special is because of his age, and it wasn't that he was an older person needing a new degree. The fear of white educators and white parents at Oklahoma University is that if black males you know, the guys that play college football, if black males went to white universities. And you mean w- like young black males, not just young white. Black- well, they were afraid of all of them, but the young ones especially. Okay. Okay. If they went to college, their sole purpose would be to either have sexual relations or assault white female students. So to protect the students on campus, black people were not allowed, especially not black men on campus. But with Dr. McLaurin being married, already having a master's degree and being 61, I guess they weren't so afraid of him.
0: So he was going to try to break that racial barrier at the University of Oklahoma, and the reason he was chosen was he didn't seem as threatening.
1: Exactly. Now, again, he is credited with being the first Black student admitted, but he was a part of a group of five. Now, the NAACP Uh, use their famous lawyer, Thurgood Marshall, who we all know as Chief uh, Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, and Oklahoma City Attorney Amos T. Hall. They cited Plessy versus Ferguson, which is also known as separate but equal. It's what allowed segregation to continue because quickly it just meant As long as you guys are away from us, we'll just make sure that everything is the same. Just keep it separate racially.
0: Okay, so basically Plessy V. Ferguson says you can have separate bathrooms, but they have to be equal. And you can have separate schools, but they have to be equal. So um, that allowed for segregation, right? Is that what that was all about?
1: On paper, it allowed for it, but the conditions were rarely equal. Mm. Now, the argument uh, at the time Attorney Marshall and Attorney Hall stated is, well, Oklahoma did not have a separate law school for African-Americans. So by law, Oklahoma University had to admit black students into their law school.
0: Oh, so basically they were not they were in violation of Plessy v. Ferguson because there should have been a law school for black students, right?
1: Correct. Now there was a quick quick kind of three-card money deal where they tried to make a law school, but it was not adequate for someone of Dr. McLaren's educational status. Remember, he was already a college professor who held a master's degree. So OU, Oklahoma University, had to give in. Now, to comply with the state separation laws, the president of the university arranged that Dr. McLaurin's classes had to be held in a classroom, but in an ante room, so kind of a room off in a way, so when you see that picture of him on the internet where he's kind of tucked away and nobody's paying attention to him. That was put there by the president of the university. By sitting in a side room away from white students, he could attend classes, but they could still keep him segregated. He had special seating areas in the cafeteria, at sporting events, restrooms. They were all put there to continue segregation. I went to college and I've been to a couple college football games and basketball games. I couldn't imagine having to sit all by myself being the only one just mm-hmm. at the football game. That's and, bizarre. <laughs> and this was held up by state law. Now, Dr. McLaren, Thurgood Marshall, uh, and, uh, attorney Hall, all, Continued to challenge these segregated practices. Dr. Uh, McLaren himself, in the case, Oklahoma Board of Regents, uh, Dr. George uh, W. McLaren versus Oklahoma Board of Regents for high, at Higher Education, ruled that this segregation handicapped him in his pursuit of an effective graduate instruction the decision began the process of tearing down official barriers in racial integration in oklahoma higher education he well unfortunately dr mclaren ultimately left the university after two semesters he lost longer than i would his case however would prove a key precedent in the national fight against segregation in education which paved the way for the landmark case of brown V Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas. So Dr. McLaren, uh, Ida Louise, and all other uh, students who participated in this fight to get a t- uh, become students at OU paved the way for me being able to go to school. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know,
0: George McLaren was truly a trailblazer to have endured that kind of mistreatment and the university sure put a lot of energy into keeping him away from white students. Um, we have him to thank, as you said, for that landmark case, Brown v. Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, which actually established that separate was inherently unequal in all levels of education.
1: Well, I know there's not a lot we can do about the implicit bias of teachers and school resource offices officers, but... Brown v. Board of Education did away with systemic racism in education, right, Aunt Carol? I mean, you were a teacher.
0: Not so fast, dear niece. After the break, let's talk about that.
1: Okay. So, Aunt Carol, I'd like to think things have improved, but what I know as a student of public and private education tells me otherwise, personal experience included.
0: Well, you're right, Courtney, things are different, but not much better than they were when George McLaren was forced to sit in the corner. But before I tell you what's going on now, I want to remind our listeners, if they want to take a deeper dive into understanding systemic racism in America, they can go to our website, www.whyaretheysoangry.com for information and take our course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. So, yes, my dear niece, education has its own form of systemic racism today. For example, all that effort to desegregate schools has gone for naught because schools are very resegregated now. The number of segregated schools has approximately doubled between 1996 and 2016. And for black students, the percentage in segregated schools rose from 59 to 71%. So Dr. McLaren made a great effort, but mm, we're seeing everything kind of going backwards. Uh, Schools which are predominantly black African-American students also lack the kind of services that you would expect any school to have. For example, the ACLU reports that approximately 1.7 million students attend schools with police officers, but no counselors. 3 million students attend schools with police, but no nurses. 6 million students attend schools with police, but no psychologists. And 10 million students attend schools with police, but no social workers. And speaking of police in schools, some say this contributes to the school to prison pipeline. According to the U.S. Department of Education uh, Office for Civil Rights, Black, Hispanic male and American Indian students face higher rates of school disciplinary consequences as such as suspension and expulsion than white students. They're subject to more interactions with police in schools and in the form of contraband sweeps, interrogations, physical restraints, and arrest, And they're more likely to be subjected to get this social media surveillance and the use of biased artificial intelligence and facial recognition technology.
1: Hmm. So that kind of sounds like they're prepping black and brown students to be used to being institutionalized. And Unfortunately. I mean. Okay, I didn't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, and I watched Black Mirror on Netflix, but that's kind of scary. It is very scary. It is very scary. You may have heard the uh,
0: case reported back in June of this year about a 15-year-old high school uh, girl in Michigan who was actually incarcerated during the coronavirus pandemic. When a judge reviewed her case and felt that not completing her schoolwork violated her probation, and so she was sent to juvenile detention as a result. Kind of crazy. But what's really saddening is Black students are much more likely to be suspended from, listen to this, preschool much more likely to be suspended from school than white students. They make up 18% of all preschoolers, but represent 50% of all preschool suspensions.
1: Preschool? Now, I have have another aunt who works for Head Start. I mean, kids, little kids terrify me, but don't think they need to be suspended but I was also reading articles where black girls are often uh, seen as angry uh, their hairstyles are more likely to get them in trouble and a young scholar from Texas who was on the honor roll was told if he didn't cut his dreadlocks he couldn't walk at commencement
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right so now you're getting the drift It's alive and it's functioning in education. Now think back, we talked about how during the Jim Crow era, there were funding inequities and facility inequities. But let me tell you about right now. Recently, the US Government Accountability Office released a report that estimated that more than half of the nation's public school districts needed to update or entirely replace systems like heating, air conditioning, or plumbing. And many of these districts are concentrated in high poverty areas. And guess who probably lives in those high poverty areas? Black African-American students. Wow. Now, remember when we talked in our last episode about how redlining kept affordable mortgages and home improvement loans out of predominantly black neighborhoods? Well, that's all related to poor school funding for buildings and repairs. This is how it works. Since property taxes pay for public schools, lack of home ownership and lower property values contribute to poorer or underfunded schools. So it's all related, it's all intertwined. If you don't have high property values, there's nothing to tax or it's taxed at a very low rate. And those taxes, fewer tax dollars going into the coffers means less money for building nicer schools or repairing the schools that already exist. So one last piece of, Uh, information from a study. According to reports from the Education Trust, Black African American students have fewer opportunities to take rigorous coursework or enroll in advanced placement and advanced classes. These are entry points to college admission, and eventually to better paying jobs. Now, as I recall, Courtney, you went to a suburban high school. Did you have a problem getting access to higher-level courses and AP classes?
1: I did not, but uh, even though I didn't, there were several instances where I got the look of I didn't belong. There you go. I did speech and debate in schools. But when it came to certain instances, I was always seen as the one who started the issue.
0: Yeah, sometimes that's the case. And I understand when you were on the debate team, you had some unhappy experiences during that time. I did.
1: As you all know, I like to talk. So speech and debate or forensics was the perfect extracurricular activity for me now i was one of the few and often sometimes the only african-american student on my team there were several instances where adults not students would want to challenge wins or points there was even a point where a lady said a very not nice word and she put it in the sentence that not nice word could never have beaten my daughter well just like rocky and rocky 4 I beat her daughter. (laughs) Well, There we have it, there we have it. Well, Courtney, it's still an uphill
0: battle to get equity in education today. And since you can see it's systemic racism that is at the root of the problem. And how we eliminate that is by taking a look and going back to some of the areas that I just talked about. We need to ensure that schools, all schools, public schools, have adequate funding, that they have teachers who are well-trained and and excited and wanting to be in the schools where they are teaching. Uh, We need teachers and leaders who are experienced at what they do to be the mentors and the leaders in the schools where they are. We also need to make sure that we're taking a look at policy and procedures and ensuring that they are not disadvantaging young people because how we get our start in life determines many times the path that we're going to follow and where we may end up. So that's the story. Systemic racism, it's in education and it's our job to root it out. So that's it for this story. Where else can people get some more information about the topic we just finished discussing?
1: Well, they can find us on www.whyaretheysoangry.com, which is our website where you can take our online course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. You can also find us on Twitter at watsa underscore online and Instagram at why are they so angry all spelled out and Carol you are absolutely right growing up in our family you instilled in all the kids a love of education grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles instilled in us a love of reading but a lot of kids get that spark from school So we have to make sure that Black African-American students are getting an equal opportunity. So I hope everyone learned something and is going to do something after hearing us today. I couldn't agree more. Now, the next time we chat, Dear Niece,
0: we'll delve into systemic racism in the judicial system. Now, that includes law enforcement, prisons, courts, all of the pieces that make up the judicial system system of this country. And um, it's going to be quite an episode, I can promise you.
1: Well, with everything going on today, I am sure it is going to be one of our heavier episodes. But... It doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.